podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Boom, we're on. Today's guest, we've got five-time Mr. Universe, Eddie Elwood. How are I'm you, brother? I'm three times England's strongest man. And three times England's strongest <laughs> man. How are you, brother? I'm good, thanks. It's good to have you on. Cheers for getting me on, James. Phenomenal career. Um, so as to winning Mr. Universe five times, competing against the biggest names on the planet. England strongman as well. You went from Mr. Universe to then going strongman, yeah. which is not many people can do. But phenomenal achievements, and it's an absolute honour to sitting across for you, brother. Thank you very much. First of all, how are you? Pardon? How are you? How? How's things? Sorry about that. How's things? I'm very, very good, thank you. Yeah, keeping I'm busy. Fit. Yeah, I'm fit. I'm keeping busy. Uh, the, the whole COVID thing's kept me busy. Um, uh, my life is just living as normal. I'm not a person who would go drinking anyway, so I haven't missed the pubs. Um, maybe just missed a couple of restaurants, that's about it. Yeah. We'll touch on all that stuff. I know you went to court and stuff. You were mm. one of the, the few who kept our gym open to try yeah. and help people with their mental health and stuff, and they kept trying to shut you down. But I always go back to the start with my guests. That's fine. Where you grew up and how it all began. I started, um, I lived in Horden, which is a close village to here. Um, it was a mining village before all the mines were closed by the Tories. Um, and that was an era as well, you know, where everybody was living from day to day. You know, they were living off food parcels. And But I, I was a young kid, very adventurous. We had local beaches, local forests and stuff. A lot of the stuff I, I did on my own, you know, I would go out to the forest, I'd go out to the beach, um, maybe it's me and one or two or other friends. But I was always out. I was always doing something. Um, my father learned me the fundamentals of boxing at a very young age. And at the age of uh, 12, I got my medical card to start boxing. Um, I had 56 amateur fights um, and finished my amateur career at the age of 19. Um, I boxed um, a guy who you've had on recently, Richie Horsley. Great guy, shout out to yeah, Richie. Yeah, shout out Richley, Richie. Um, and I still keep in touch with Richie. You know, he pops in the gym every now and again. We've been friends a long time. Um, I boxed in the... I, I came, the, the culmination of it was when I, came, when, I, when I was 19, I was boxing at light heavyweight. And uh, I was looking forward to boxing in the area ABAs at light heavyweight. And I'd gone to Wayne. I was only 10 minutes, there was only 10 minutes left of the Wayne. We got there. Uh, we, I weighed in two pound over the light heavyweight limit. It was about 12 stone 10. And they said, yeah, you need to lose two pound. I didn't have time to lose two pound. Um, my coach said, just fight heavyweight. <laughs> but I was like, it's a lot of weight to give away when you're only 12 stone 10, like up to 13 stone four, you know. Um, sorry, 14 stone four at the time. And I was like, right, okay. And so I boxed two brothers, one in the quarterfinal and the other one in the um, semifinal. semifinal. And the brothers were called uh, Tony and Peter Hallett from Newcastle. The father was called Paddy Hallett. Um, he was their coach. And they were both six foot three, four lads, you know, tall, like gangly lads, but they were heavyweights, you know. And I beat both of them to box in the area final. And I boxed a guy called Manny Burgo in the area final. Really, I was only a light heavyweight. Manny looked the part. He boxed for England. He had his England vest on. Um, lovely lad, Manny. Um, lives at North Shields. And um, I got beat 
uh, to Manny on a majority, which is two judges to one. So Manny says to us, I think you're getting it, but like, it was only because I boxed. I didn't try to mix it with him. I didn't have the body weight to mix it with him. So I came away from that fight thinking, at the age of 19, I'm going to become a, tr uh, a real heavyweight. So I need to chase that on. My father had always been into weight training and run weight training gyms. I'd always been a very parky eater. I just ate what I want, you know? And I was like, if my mum gave a steak, I used to twist, you know? And I suppose I should have thought myself a bit lucky, but I was, I was mm. like, I would rather have beans on toast, you know, uh, egg and chips. <clears throat> but at the time, I knew I would have to start eating properly. I would have to start doing everything right. So I listened to what my dad had to say. He says, right, why don't you train for this bodybuilding show, which was six months time, which would really get us in the, the mind player to eat good food, to get lean and put good tissue on for the bodybuilding competition, which was in October. I finished in the main boxing. So I trained for the bodybuilding show in October. I went from 12 stone 10, you know, not totally lean, but I was like, you know, I was somewhere near, but I ended up getting on a bodybuilding show for a junior competition at the age of 19 in the October at 13 stone four, but ripped. Um, and I won it. So I thought, oh, this is all right. I think I might do another one because I'm 13 stone four was still not heavy enough for us. I wanted to get a bit heavier. So I, I, I set myself another goal for to do the area qualify for the Britain finals as a junior. And the federation I was competing in is called NABA, National Amateur Bodybuilding Association. Um, and it was the biggest competition in the country at the time to get ready for the Mr. Britain. So I got ready for the North Britain as a junior. And the junior stipulation was to be under 20 on January the 1st, which I was because I um, didn't turn 21, didn't turn 21 to the March. So, sorry, I was 21 to the first one. So I was 21 in the March. Uh, so I was 20 on January 1st, so the the show was in the April, so I was 21, but somebody was being spread in a rumour that I was too old. So when I got the, but I didn't know this, when I got the competition, the uh, the judges said, oh, have you got your birth certificate, are you driving license, I've been told you're too old. I said, I'm not too old, I'm 21, you know what I mean? Well, if you haven't got proof of ID, you're going to have to do the novices. Well, it broke me out because it was only my second competition and I wanted to go and win a junior title, you know. Novices was a step up, was more senior. Anyway, I did the novices, qualified for the Britain, and I still placed fifth in a good line out at the Britain finals, but that chased me straight into the Mr. category. So within within less than a year of training, I was already a Mr. category bodybuilder. I needed to put some tissue on. I was six foot one and a half, you know, and I wasn't I was only fourteen stone four at the second the uh, second competition. So then I got ready for the similar show I'd done as a junior the previous year to do in the October as a Mr. Uh, it was called the Mr. British Isles, and I won that competition as the Mr. Uh, a year later. And then I just, I lost all interest in the boxing. I just carried on with the bodybuilding, and away I went. It's totally night and day. How was, was your dad a competitor? My dad wasn't a competitor. He's more just a, a coach, you know. He'd, he'd not studied, but he, he knew the basics, mm -hmm. you know. you know, He knew the basic fundamentals of how to train, how to eat. So he got me on, he started me on the right path, but then I started research. Like, if I'm going to do anything, I want to do it properly, and I research, and I put my time and effort into it. Um, and I went from strength to strength. So the in 19, I think it was 84, I did the tall, sorry, 84, I did the novice. 85, I did my first tall class Britain finals. So from the previous year, getting fifth in the novice, a year later, I got fifth in the tall class mister. 
Uh, a year after that, I, I won the tall class mister. It was, sorry, it was 87. I won the tall class mister. 88. Sorry, second in the tall class mister. Second in the tall class mister. 88, I won the tall class mister. I came back in 89 and I won the overall. So it's the four classes put together. Mm. So I won my class and the overall in 89. What was the controversy? It was you were 1920 and they tried to kick you out? What happened was uh, in. <laughs> I was amateur and I always used to take a great big following to Blackpool. It was a great time for bodybuilding at the 80s, early 90s. And I used to have like uh, probably two busloads, two 30, 40-seat busloads. We used to sell 90 to 150 tickets to go to Blackpool. People used to go in the cars. We used to book boarding houses, you know. We used to spend a weekend there. But it was a great, it was a great camaraderie and a great weekend. And... My father had took on the role as a WABA president for the Northeast, and the the federation I was competing with was NABA, National Amateur Bodybuilding, where my dad had took all over the world, Amateur Bodybuilding Federation area um, representative. So I think NABA were worried about me taking my support all the way over there. I'd already qualified for the Britain as a mister in 89 when they came in and said... Uh, I don't know how it came about, but I was the first person to be banned by the National Amateur Bodybuilding Association, so they sent me a ban. And I was like, when I received it, I was shocked because it, there'd always been a very, very fair federation. I was thinking, oh, where's this come from? It was because I'd done a guest appearance at another bodybuilding show. It was only guest appearance. I wasn't competing. I wasn't a professional. They did, I didn't have any contracts with this federation. And I thought, nah, again, stand up with the bullies. You know, that's the most important lesson I've ever learned by my father is always stand up for yourself. Never bully anybody, but always, you know what I mean? Always stand up for yourself if anybody tries to bully you. So I decided, no, I'm taking this to court. So I found a bar, I was unemployed at the time, so I got illegal aid, and I found a barrister in uh, a, a sports solicitor in Leeds that would take the case on. Went down to see him a couple of times, which was an hour and a half's travel each time I went to see him, and it ended up in Crown Court. <clears throat> but it didn't end up in Crown Court till the eve of the Britain. So I had to train to get ready for a competition. I didn't even know whether I was going to be allowed to compete in. So I trained and died my ass off to get ready for this competition. And just before the competition, we got to know that it was on the eve of the Britain, Britain finals, which was the Friday, which would be a day we'd normally travel over to Blackpool, you know, and settle up. So the, the buses had to wait for us coming back from the courts. So we went down to the courts and uh, went into the courts and NABA hadn't sent nobody to represent themselves. So straight away the judge ordered that I'd be given an injunction to compete. They haven't bothered, you know, it's affecting your career. They haven't bothered to turn up to defend themselves. So I'm going to send somebody over tonight to Blackpool and give a, uh, an injunction to all the committee members that are banned you. So you, get, you will get your chance to compete tomorrow, he said. So... We left there, drove back to the gym, and we didn't want no time for Facebook or mobile phones even, you know, so that we couldn't even let them know that I'd, I'd get me injunction. So when we got back, they all erupted on the buses, you know, they were like over the moon that we were competing. But none of the officials knew why they were getting served there on the night, so we were all happy driving over towards Blackpool and our buses, settled up in the um, boarding houses, went out for a, a light walk, a couple of little wines, you know, the night before. Um, the rest of them partied. I got up to go at the venue the next day. Sorry, on the evening time, we, was, we were relaxing the boarding houses. The guy who had been sent over to serve the injunctions had come to the boarding house and said, I'm sorry, I said, I'll try to serve these. Nobody will accept them. Nobody's admitting to be 
Ivan Dunbar, or certain names, you know. Uh, John Clements was a guy who was the Scottish representative. And then, so my brother said, well, I'll come along, I'll point them all out. So he went along, pointed them all out, and they all got served the injunction for me to compete the next day. So I suppose it was a bit of a shock for them. So the next day I was all full of myself, you know, like really like chest pumped up, you know, just walked down the new tracksuit on, walked down the, the none of the other competitors would, would have even known I was there, you know. So I suppose they were all shocked too. Because I was somebody who was climbing at the time, so I would have been a, a threat to a lot of people, yeah. you know. So that, Were you a favourite or anything at that time? I was somewhere near, yeah, because I'd won the tall class the year before. So mm. they must have all a bit... And, and because I was improving every year, they'll be thinking, because well, you, you didn't have social media like this, so you couldn't post what you were doing. Not that I wanted to, I always mm. kept covered up. But when I got there, I was probably £10 heavier than the previous year, so nobody knew that, and I was in good nick. So I walked into Winter Gardens on the morning and John Clements spotted us, but he, he hadn't known about the injunction. So John Clements, the Scottish rep, came over and he was a friend. You know, he says, all right, Eddie, how are you doing? And he, he looked out as strange because I had my tans, my bodybuilding tan on, you know, and he looked, he went, what are you doing here? I says, I'm competing. He, and he looked shot. He went, yeah. oh, but you're not. And he just stormed off. So I was like grinning inside, really think like somebody else shocked, you know. So I went and sat in the audience. We always used to just, I, I checked in, the loudest to check in, went and sat in the audience. And halfway through the afternoon, it was probably about two hours before I was Joe on stage, as I was just watching the rest of the judging, I got a call out from Tony Sullivan, God rest his soul, he's passed away now, but he's he, he became a personal friend. But at the time, I wasn't his friend, you know, so... I got a call out from Tony Sullivan, who was then the NABBA chairman. Could Eddie Elwood please come backstage? So I wandered backstage. And Tony said, was, right, he said, you're not competing today. I said, I beg your pardon? He says, we've just received an injunction to stop you competing today, to overrule your injunction from the High Court in London by Judge Papadopoulos. And I was thinking, what? I even remember the name because it's so pathetic, you know. Judge Papadopoulos of the High Court London. I went to serve it then. He was like, no, we don't have to. I said, you do. I said, you've got to serve an injunction for it to have effect. He says, no. I said, you do. I said, you don't serve me an injunction. I'm getting on that stage. I even had it in my head anyway that there's, there was some toilets out the back, like down at the Winter Garden and went down some stairs, which I'd used over the previous years. And I thought, I'll get changed down there. Even if they don't allow us to compete, I'll get changed down there. I'll be in the hall and I'll jump on the stage where my class is on, hit a few shots and I'll wait just to let them know I was there. Mm-hmm. And let the audience know I was prepared, you know what I mean? So that was the final outcome, if that's where it was going to be. But anyway, um, I came back out. They didn't serve us no injunction. I came back out, sat in the audience again. About half an hour later, could Eddie Elwood please come backstage? So I said to my dad, will you come with us to witness this? You know, so I went back again and started saying, I says, I says, I'm not, I'm getting on that stage. You're not serving me with an injunction. I'm competing. I was always worried because I always thought like, because I'm really putting a fight up, I'm not going to get judged fairly. Mm-hmm. But what I know now, because I, be- I became like a top official of NABA now, I'm like international NABA, NABA president, now world president. Um, so what ranks I've gone through from area representative to NABA chairman and everything else, mm-hmm. I know there's no skullduggery goes on. So they're not working together. So they're not working together. What go? What happens? I actually put things in place to stop any sort of bias and mm-hmm. and bad judgment. Because at one time, judges used to be just friends of friends, and uh, 
and th but there weren't representatives. There weren't the actual committee. There were judges from areas, you know, like just bodybuilders that yeah. tr were some, from certain areas. Like you had to have a judge and panel in your area, so they would pick bodybuilders from that area. Hmm. So the judges, the, the area representatives, weren't the ones judging. Yeah. So what makes a good judge then? So I, I actually, what I do now is I, I actually judge the judges. So I have a score system where the final outcome is judged on nine judges. Uh, so there's nine judges give their scores from eight down through one. So if there's 20 competitors on stage, they've got to judge eight, eight to one. So that's eighth to first. And out of that eighth to first, if you've got nine decent judges, you should get the top six. You know, mm -hmm. you say yeah, well, yeah, yeah. you should get the top six. They should get in them eight. You should get somewhere near your top six. And there's a foot, like you say, the six eight points down to one point. So the less points you have, is yeah. higher up you are. So to remove any bias, you've got nine judges. Each judge has his highest and his lowest point on a page taken out. You understand where I'm yeah. going? So that so not each judge each category mm. has the highest and the lowest so if there's a judge being biased and judging somebody down that that's removed if there's a judge being biased and judge somebody up that's removed so you're not getting any favoritism mm -hmm. so then you get a, an average of points at the end uh so the judge on seven judges really each each class is judge on seven judges because two judges are removed out of each class and then the points are added up and total so then i can work out which judge has been the closest to the first, second, third, fourth, right down to eighth place? So I'll give a judge. Now the scoring system says it gives each judge points on each placing. So if you get a placing correct, so it's the first, your first match is the first at the end, you get three points. If your first, if you're, you've got somebody second that's first, you get two points because one place removed. If um, so. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And if you've got a place three removed, so you've got the first in third, you only get one point. Mm -hmm. And you don't get any points for any places that's outside of three. So then points are added up. So each judge has added score mm -hmm. points up, and it works out that you can find the best judge, you know? So there's no politics the behind so that. So there's no politics. No. So now when p judges get sent from areas to judge nationals, it's the best judges in each area. Mm -hmm. And you, you monitor it, you know? So the... You can't be biased. You can't yeah. just send your friend. You might, somebody you might not want to want to send, but you have to send because he's yeah. won. You know, he's mm -hmm. the best judge. So what happens with the injunction then? Did you get to compete? So I got to compete. So this is what I'm telling you now. The nine judges, I was thinking, oh God, I'm going to get shoved up my backside. But I was spot on. I had to, I had to be spot on that year. Anyway, I got on stage, competed, came off stage, and I, I was surprised that so many judges would come to us and say, I'm glad you were on form today. You're getting it. You, as far as I'm concerned, I judge you first. You know what I mean? I was thinking, like, what? And then I realized these are all just bodybuilders, and they were quite proud of what I'd done, standing up for myself, you know what I mean, in, in that type of situation. And my mum still got the score sheet. Out of the nine judges, out nine firsts. It was a, like a unanimous point. So you thing. won it. So I won it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That nobody can dispute that, you know. And then after that competition, I, dis I got a phone call off one of the representatives. So he would be, you know, not not in favour of us. And he rang us at the gym and he said, you were never, ever going to do anything with Nabber again. 
that was a phone call he made to me. And I was thinking, like, it's time to go IFBB anyway, which is the, the Mr. Olympia circuit, mm -hmm. to try and get me professional card to compete on the Olympia circuit. So I went from winning the, the NABBA show that year. Within a few months, I'd done the IFBB uh, finals and got third. So I didn't win their show. I got third. Um, and then I came back the following year, messed up with me, died a little bit, and ended up in second place. Because every year they only give two pro cards out. It's not like nowadays everybody's a pro. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not pros, but you know, they call themselves <laughs> pros. It's yeah. a joke. It is a joke. And it's a monitor, it's a money-making system. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? There's, I think they give about 300 pro cards out in the country every year. So each one of them has to pay two or 300 pounds professional card money. Mm -hmm. So it's a money-making racket yeah. now. Where it, back in my day, they give one to the overall mister, one to the overall miss. You got two, they meant something. So nationally, there's two pro cards given out. Yeah. Um, so it took me three years to get my pro card. So I got my pro card in the October of uh, 91. How old were you? Um, 20. I can't really remember. 91 old. About 27, 28. Yeah. Can I not, but that's happening though, that if you're competing and try to train hard and eat <clears throat> right and sacrifice for people mm. not wanting you in their competition... Um, or was that a fuck you to them so I'm going to show you yes well that's this is where I'm getting with the IFBB IFBB is very political and they've never really favoured any of the NABBA guys coming across why is that um, because they want to show that because NABBA was the biggest federation at one time and they don't want uh, uh, this is my opinion and it's uh, probably a lot of people's opinion that I mean Arnold Schwarzenegger won, won four Mr Universe titles mm-hmm Two, I think it was two prof two amateur and two professionals. Eduardo Kawak from France, he won four Mr. Universe titles off the trot. Actually, no, he won five Universe titles like me, but they weren't all consecutive. I'm the only one that's won five consecutive titles. So I broke a record, and it'll stand for a long time because the money's not there. Um, but anyway, any time... Anybody left, but obviously in the day of Arnold, there wasn't that many competitors. So the weeders came across, did the universe, took that model back to the US. They even stole the trophy, you know, the Sandow trophy. What they yeah. now, now, now give out is the Olympia trophy, was the original universe trophy. So now they've got the monopoly on giving that trophy out. Um, <clears throat> Arnold was really contracted to go in the early days because he was trying to steal all the NABBA guys, all the top NABBA guys to make his show work in the US. And that's how it got lifted with the likes of Arnold and, mm -hmm. you know, so all them made the IFBB strong. But then in in the future, any most NABBA guys that were going across were getting knocked back. You know, they were like, mm -hmm. they weren't making it big. Um, all the Americans were, but like, any English or whatever. Mm -hmm. But since then, um, I mean, anybody who competes just IFBB, who's just gone through the ranks of IFBB, always earn the stripes, you know. Yeah. Um, not that they haven't deserved it, but you can, like, be on form when, like as a NABBA mm -hmm. competitor and go to IFBB and not make yeah. it. What was your training like and how was your <laughs> calorie intake? <sighs> Crazy. Did that um, go up every year? Being at the body weight, what I was, I was a big six foot one, and in my final year of competition, I competed on stage at 20 and a half stone ripped. 
Mm-hmm. And to maintain that type of muscularity, that body weight, it took a lot of heavy training and a lot of calorie, calorific eating. I used to consume, and like I can't get this today, like everybody's eating no carbs, you know, lots mm. of protein, no carbs and peanut butter. I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> I really don't know where it comes from. You know, high fats. Mm. Um, because I kept a balanced diet, but my carbohydrate intake was like high compared to today. I would do seven to 800 grams of carbs daily. Um, but if you're training that intensely, you need them. I mean... Um, Cyclists, women's cyclist team in the in one of the Olympics was consuming near a thousand calories a day. If you're exercising, you need it. Mm-hmm. You start reducing your calories that much, you'll just lose muscle tissue. Your body metabolism will slow down, and you'll you look like a bag of crap, really. Yeah. So do you think you're consuming over ten thousand calories a day? I wouldn't have said ten thousand, North. I would have said probably five or six quality calories. Mm-hmm. But you needed the quality calories to gain. How was your energy levels? Energy levels were good apart from competing because then you start cutting calories. Like my bodybuilding diet was the same, probably, uh, well, it was the same. The bodybuilding diet remained the same constantly. But if I was off season, I wasn't competing. If I wanted a pizza, a burger or a Chinese, they were as well as. So I got the excess calories and my cravings were killed by utilizing the, the junk mm-hmm. as well as. What was your cut like? Before a competition cutting? Um, well, break, break my calories yeah. up. Well, like I said, like I was only eat, eating excess calories by eating on top of my normal body to build diet. So I would get rid of the pizza, the, the you know, and my diet would be just back to normal, you know, because I was eating them foods every day anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do um, oats. I didn't do wheat because wheat uh, binds to estrogen, and when you're taking levels of synthetic hormone, then your, your natural estrogen levels rise in, mm-hmm. in ratio. So if you take some synthetic male hormone, your natural estrogen levels rise in ratio, because men have, have female hormone, mm-hmm. and your body re- uh, reacts. So usually your synthetic hormone, when you finish taking it, drops very quickly, but your estrogen level being natural, won't so it becomes imbalanced yeah. so what happens when your est- estrogen goes up do you get more yeah, emotional estrogen est- est- estrogen levels are high you get like um depressed emotions well as such as that you get uh, female characteristics which they call bitch tit mm-hmm. um water retention you know like you know a woman yeah you get moody but you know what I'm saying? Like the wrong time of the month, a, w- a woman carries water. And that's because the estrogen levels are higher. And the same within men. And I used to cut out gluten because gluten used to bind estrogen. So removing the gluten out of your body would stop the, the would limit the amount of estrogen that was getting held. Uh, and it used to work, going gluten free. Did you study all this? Did you read books or anything before? Always. I was always on the hunt to make sure that I was a step ahead of everybody else. Mm-hmm. Always. Did people want to train with you or did you train yourself? I could train myself, but I would, I would always have a training partner for timing because I didn't need anybody for push. I could do it myself. I just needed training partners for timing and a little bit of assistance. So the minute I was off, they were down. The minute they were off, I was down. And that's the way I trained always, which stood us in good stead for me, strongman, because like the strongman fitness had to be there as well. So lifting weight and carrying weight and back and forth, um, you needed good heart and lungs as well as grip. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and I, I'd never trained with any strongman equipment when I got into strongman, but like I was always fit, you know. When you won Mr. Universe in 96, what was that feeling like? Were you going in? I didn't win it in 96. The, the, what happened was I'd done IFBB for four years and I felt like when I, when I got my IFBB pro card, the first show I did was the 92 Arnold Classic. Mm. And it was a bit one of the, it was the biggest show. It was bigger than the Olympia, really, for prize money. It was big. It was as big as prize money, and with having Arnold's name behind it, it was like massive. We only only had twenty competitors every year, and you had to get an invite. Well, I came in the back door really because I was doing a show on Ireland. Just have to get me pro card, and a woman called Diane Bennett, who was the daughter of Wag Bennett. I'd noticed, she says, well, why don't you do the Arnold Classic? I said, I'm not getting an invite. I haven't done a pro show yet. You know, she said, I'll get you an invite. Well, she'd been to Arnold's wedding and everything because when Arnold came to the country in the early days, he used to stay with Diane and Wag. So the good friends of the family and Diane, I went down to see her. She says, do you want to see the, the, the pictures of the wedding? She says, I was the only one that was allowed a camera at Arnold's wedding. She says, because... He didn't want anybody else selling prints and he knew he could trust me to just take me on pictures and keep mm -hmm. them. So she had her own family album of Arnold's wedding. She showed us them. So I knew she she was well in with Arnold. Yeah. Anyway, Arnold getting it, she said, oh, you just need to ring Jim Lorimer, who was Arnold's partner at the time. So I rang Jim Lorimer, sorted it all out, got in. And I'm thinking, I can't believe it. I'm doing the Arnold Classic for my first pro show. Um Anyway, went to the States, got well treated at the Arnold Classic. He really, really looked after you, you know. And um, and I'm not saying I deserve to win any of the IFBB shows. And it was like, see, I was, a, I was a rookie when I went across to do the Arnold Classics. So I was in good condition. And um, came off stage a bit deflated because I didn't get many call-outs or anything. And I, so I thought, well, just maybe it's just because I'm new. You know, I came home from that, and I was—I always funded myself really. Apart from like the one that you did get some shows, like the Arnold Classic was invites, so you got your your hotel and everything paid. Um, but usually, I'd fund myself just because I wanted to be Sean Kane. Um, I came back from there, and I was uh, in my father's gym training, and the phone rang, and, and it was Wayne Demilia who ran the federation for the waiters and he basically he got on the phone he says uh and he says you're not going to do you'll never do nothing with ifbb because you've got no arms and i did have a problem with my arms i wasn't disputing that because of all my boxing training over the years my fast work it's like a sprinter's never going to build a pair of legs like tom platt's you know sorry a long distance runner's never going to build a pair of legs you know because the the train the muscle fibers a different way so i pounded my arms in different routines to try and make them grow eventually i did get them but not as big to match the rest of my physique so my arms were a little touch like but that's not the attitude he should have had you should me being a rookie i, I felt as you should have gotten on the phone and said listen eddie you know you, you look okay but your arms are weak you know you need to get your arms up if you're going to do anything and that wasn't the attitude he had with me. You know, he just basically shot me down. Is that deflating you? It did deflate me at the time because I got off the phone and said to my dad, he doesn't like me, him. You know, when you get that feeling from somebody, mm. just, well, off that type of phone call, what would you feel, you know? Yeah. When somebody's telling you you're not going to do anything. And then I thought, well, why is he saying that? I was trying to try, I was trying to dissect it all, you know? I was thinking, well, why has he said it? What's, what's behind it? Is it because I've gone through Diane and not the right channels? Mm. Um... So I thought, no, I'll come home, I'll work hard, and I'll go back and I'll I'll show them that and improve, you know. And that's what I kept doing, year in, year out, still getting put on, like still getting squashed every time, you know what I mean? I went, and I even, 
his show was in the May, the New York Night of the Champions, and it was his show, and I thought, you know, something I'll pay to go and do, like a lot of competitors got paid to go and do his show. I thought, I'll pay, I'll ask him if I can do his show, and I'll pay me expenses to go. He'll say I'm keen, you know what I mean? I went, nah, it was a waste of money, you know. Yeah. There was 35 competitors on stage, three rows, uh, that was the stage was only short, so they didn't couldn't get thirty five across the stage. So they had three rows. They had like a two twelves and an eleven, and I happened to be on the the third row back in the far corner near the curtain. And I was thinking, oh, they should start rotating the rows. Can we now have the second row to the front and the first row to the back? And I was expecting to move on to the front. Didn't happen like that. They just shout people out that they knew. So I'm stood here at the back of the curtain, just deflating, you know, just. Mm -hmm. I lost it, and I lost a bit of motivation a little bit. So for four years I was doing this, and I was like, so I was doing the English Grand Prix every year. The English Grand Prix was um, the the biggest IFBB show in the country, professional show, and I was doing it only to show the English um, supporters that I was, I was getting it shoved up my ass, you know, because I was big enough, uh, I was good enough to place, not saying win, to place top 10 and not getting top 15, sometimes in the top 20. So the the last year I did it, I, I got myself as good as I could get, and I thought, and I sent my parents because I'd been in there four years and not won a thing, after winning a Britain title and the EFBB British, I was the first person to win both the Brit Naba Britain and the EFBB overall titles. I was the only person at the time to have won both, and I thought like. I've done this for four years and I've had no recognition whatsoever. And I'm like four year on, I was like 32 or whatever. And I was thinking like, I can't carry on doing this. It's, it's, it's not, it wasn't good energy. It was all negative. As much as I was trying my hardest, I was because of the situation, I was just feeling knocked back all the time. So, but I did put a lot of effort into the last one. And I just said, you know something, whether the, if I, I could win today, I'm still going back to Nabba. I want to finish my career off and try. Even though I felt as though I was stepping down uh, a grade, you know what I mean? I felt as though I can go there and I'm going to get judged fairly and I can get something out of the, the latter years of my career. So I made that decision before I did my last IFBB English Grand Prix in 96. I did the English Grand Prix and they give us a seventh. But seventh didn't qualify for you know, Olympia mm -hmm. and it just kept you out the top six prize money. I think I deserved a fifth that year, you know what I mean? But it wasn't to be. Anyway, I did the NABA Universe about three or four weeks later. So I was coming from a different federation into there again. Yeah. And I got did fourth. Did they accept you okay? I was accepted, but I don't think I was accepted by all the judges. Mm -hmm. I, I got a fourth. I don't think I deserved the fourth thing. Second would have done that year, you know what I mean? I, I think, like, I'm I'm quite critical of myself. You know what I mean? I'll say where, where I think I should have been. Um... And I got um, second that year. Sorry, got fourth that year, and I think I deserved a second. So I thought, but I, I knew in my own mind it was positive enough to lift us. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of guest appearances from it, from NABA shows. So I went around the country doing the NABA shows, guest appearances, and I just thought, I can win this show next year. Pulled me puddings out, won in 97. And I thought, well, where else have I got to do? I'll just carry on doing this. What changed for then having that? winner's mentality that you believe was it a belief or was it it's always been belief extra training better diet how did you then kick on it wasn't it was a different federation it's yeah. different class but to finish fourth and then having that belief that you were going to win it and then going on winning it i just knew myself i just like because i had been judged mm -hmm. you know what I mean? even there was probably 
I don't know, a dozen so professionals on stage at that competition. So for them not to stick it up my backside and give us outside top six, I'd give us outside top six because I'd actually gained a top six placing. It was a little bit of deflation, but then you accept it because you know you've just come back and like some judges, like, and I don't think they're, they're purposely being biased. I think it's like subliminal, you know what I mean? Oh, he's, maybe he's not as good as the number man, you know what I mean? He's, I don't think, I think it's a bit more, it's a bit more sublim, subliminal that they're thinking that yeah. their guys are better until you actually earn earn your weight, like their confidence in you. What's it like with other competitors? There's a lot of jealousies, a lot of backstabbing, or is everybody going, No, oh, okay. you know something, back in my day, in the 90s, I'll tell you a little story. What when I won my IFBB uh, Pro card, that, that year it looked like I wasn't going to qualify. I actually went down to qualify at Nottingham. It was the uh, at the Commodore Theatre, and I got third at a qualifier, right? And I, I didn't, I deserved the third. But the, the class of competition, there was a guy called Linky Wilson and another guy called Pete Chapman, who were class competitors, proper good professional looking heavyweights. And I got third to them, but I was still a good competitor. So I thought they could qualify all three of us. No, they left me out. They qualified two and left me out. I came away from that because I wasn't on form. I just went to qualify. Yeah. You know, I thought, I'll just get me qualified at the end and I'll hone in for the finals. Because uh, I didn't get qualified, I came away. My father says, I think you burnt yourself out. I think you need to have a rest. I think you need to put some beef on for next year. Just have a, have a you've done too many shows. Have a rest, you know what I mean? I went, no. I said, I'm come, I'm going to I'm going to do another qualifying do the finals. I know well, I'll take a lot out of you. I'm I said I'm I'm doing it. I know I can get ready for the finals. So anyway, I did the uh, Northeast qualify, which was six weeks later. I was the only one that turned up that qualified me. I was good enough though. Um so I qualified and then I got ready for the finals that year. And that year the guy that beat me when I got a second in uh, the Britain, Nava Britain in 88, Basil Francis competed. A lad called Linky Wilson, Pete Chapman, um, Wadley, JD, I don't know who JD, but Armory Francis, the line out was amazing, right? So like, it was good company. And uh, um, Ian Wadley's shared it a few times on, on like social media. When you watch it, you look at them all and you think, Who's won this? It was that class of competition. I would not have argued if I'd gotten sixth in the top six. It was that good of competition. And I'll still say it today, nobody would have argued who, out of the six that were top six, if the sixth was first or if the fourth was first, nobody would argue it was that close. What did judges look for? Um, symmetry, balance, condition and mass yeah. so when you came out how many like, pose what other things have you got to do so so really you, you're looking at a symmetry round which is basically you turn your body in four ways mm -hmm. so they can pick out your weaknesses so you basically just sat, stood side on and they're going to look at your side to see if you've got depth chest thickness back thickness uh, you've got no loose skin on your backside you know you, it's I suppose like judging a, a dog competition I suppose mm -hmm. And they're not really poses, you just stood on. Then you turn from one side to the back, so you're showing your back to show the thickness in your back, your traps, your calves, your hamstrings. Then you turn the opposite side to make sure your opposite side is as good a balance as the other side. Then you show your front. So then they see whether your chest's hanging or full or, you know, they can pick out your weaknesses. How many rounds? Uh, there's only two rounds, really. So you do your quarter turns and you judge on your quarter turns and then you go into your 
you do your posing routine, which is not really marked. Um, it's just basically for audience uh, enjoyment. So I just have an entertainment because you've seen people coming yeah. out and body popping and dancing. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of changed through the years. I mean, sometimes they give a best um, routine. Sometimes they'll give a best routine award. Um, but really, it's more for entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's the compulsory round where you do your muscular muscularity poses, which is a double bicep you, uh, to the front, um, your lat spread where you pull your back out, um, your abdominals and thighs where you show your abdominals and thighs, your side tricep where you show, show your side chest where you show your chest. Um, then you turn face three and you do a double bicep from behind to show the muscularity in your back and uh, you do a lat spread from the back. You turn around, you do most muscular, which shows all the vascularity and the thickness that you're carrying. And you're marked on all that. Um, and you have to have a balanced physique, so otherwise you're going to get picked straight away. You've got the people, oh, he's, he's got better calves than him. They're both about the same, but his calves are better than his, you know what I mean? Or he's... Is uh, he's got a torn bicep where he hasn't, you know? They can pick all them weaknesses out, so mm -hmm. you, they're given chance to give you a good look over. Yeah. So when you won your first Master Universe, what mm -hmm. was that feeling like for you? Um, it was it was a lift because I hadn't won anything for you. Mm -hmm. You know, well, five year actually. By the time I'd won my first year, it was a lift because I won it in like the first one in five year. Um, and then like it became not. Not, not, it became a goal more than anything. The best competition I felt felt was the Mr. Britain win. We never Mr. Britain win in 1989. Um, Why? I don't know. It was just, I think, because I'd been through so much um, with the court and everything. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Getting stopped competing. It just, uh, it just overwhelmed us, you know what I mean? And I, you know, when you feel the hairs stand up on you, you, when you're in that situation where something makes you, it just rushes over you. Mm -hmm. I'm spiritual that way. And looking back, at the time, I, I felt as I, I was having like an out-of-body experience as if I was watching myself. Like, you know what I mean? It was just a, an amazing feeling. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing feeling. So how do you end up going on in one in five, Mr. Universe? How... Hard is that on the body? How much it's strain not, as well on the body? Did you find it's, again? It's down to belief. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's 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 a uh, believe and achieve, and that's mm. what Arnold's all sayings believe and Did achieve. Did you just stick to the same program, the same tools and techniques from <clears> the first one to I, the fifth? I tell everybody, I tweet a little bit, but I tell everybody that once that'll come and ask me for advice. The most important thing about when you're asking a coach for advice, because there's any amounts of personal trainers nowadays who's never had their experience getting on stage <laughs> but they can get everybody's off your, a coach I think you get off, a coach but they can offer your advice hours. you know what I mean yeah. so I'll say to people I've done it a few times I've done it with my son you know I've done it with other people that if I'm keeping an eye on somebody I'm in tune with what they're doing you know what I mean it's not just a it's not just I'm not looking at them flippantly and just giving them gen generic advice I am actually in tune with what their body's doing because I've been there myself and I know what how how things react because I've experienced it all. So I'll give you a for instance, uh, a lad called Lucas Gabras uh, was at the universe one year when I was judging. He's from the Northwest, good competitor. And he'd get up and I'd seen him and he got sixth in the tall class category. And he was, he was a bit sore-headed about it and... I, he was under the illusion he was a lot better than what he was, I think. Anyway, 
I knew he, he could have been a lot better, a hell of a lot better, because I've seen him better. He's lost so much muscularity. So anyway, I thought, um, I'm going to give this lad a, a ring and give him a hand out, you know. So anyway, I rang him on the Monday after the Saturday. And I, I says, hi, Lucas, I says, uh, Eddie Elwood, and he didn't know who I was. I says, Eddie Elwood, I says, um, from North. I says, I've competed tall class, but I didn't tell him my pedigree. Don't, I don't, I'm not a person who does that. And I says, uh, I've complete, competed everywhere before. You know what I mean? I says, uh, and if you want to hand out, I says, I'm, I'm willing to give you a bit of advice if you want. So I've got a coach. And I said, I'm not trying to take away from any coach that you've got. I says, um, you know, I says, uh, I was just offering some help because I'm a tall class competitor and I thought I could pass some of my experience on to you. Well, thanks very much, but like, it was a thanks, but no thanks. The very next day, he must have Googled what I'd done. He rang us back the very next day within probably, t within the 24-hour period anyway. It was, I maybe spoke on the night, he rang us back in the morning the next day. He says, hi, champ. He says, can I, can I come across and see you? I said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So he came across to me, Jim, from the northwest, about three or four-hour journey. The minute he came in within, like, he says, I asked, I started asking him about what he'd been doing. He says, well, I was on a, a 50 gram, I was on 100 grams of carbs a day the last six weeks. And it, that was dropped to 50. He was doing two hours cardio every day walking. Anyway, uh, he showed his, his feet. He says, look at me toes. I said, that's not walking. I said, it's off bad nutrition. Uh, yeah, like his toenails were dropping off and stuff. He thought it was because he was doing that much cardio. I said, it's just bad nutrition. I said, I says, what else? He said, I'm doing 580 grams of protein and 250 grams of fat. And I'm thinking, like, how's your body coping? I went, right. He says, and before you say anything, I'm carb intolerant. And I was like, yeah, I've heard this before. You know what I mean? You've got to accept it, though. You know what I mean? If you're not going to listen. I said, right, I'm not going to frighten you with it. I said, nobody's carb intolerant. I says, that's how we're made. We're made to eat energy foods. Mm -hmm. I says, our bodies rely on energy, keep our metabolisms going. I said, but I'm, uh, I'm not going to take you down that route of eating lots of carbs. I'm going to start you off on a moderate uh, intake. I'm going to change your calorific intake round first. So what do you mean? I says, right, your protein, mate, I says, way too, too much over the top. I says, 580. I says, you look more like 350. I said, so there's, uh, um, what's that work out about? Uh, Two, 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 thirty, two thirty over the top. I said, convert them into carbs, same calories. I said, so take two thirty grams of protein off. I says, uh, and convert them into carbs. So you've got two hundred thirty out of the hundred that you were already eating, or you fifty. So it's call a three, three thirty. You're on now, three thirty carbs, but you're only on three fifty protein, right? I says, you're two fifty grams of fat. I said you could do only 50 grams of fat, but there's twice as many calories in fat to carbs. So you could increase twice as many calories, as uh, twice as many grams of carbs. So you're talking another 400 grams of carbs on top. That's why I said I'm looking at probably 700 grams of carbs for you, it was 750 or whatever. He says, uh, no. I said, same calories. Just you're changing the, the calorific, in, you're changing the quantities of food round to suit. Um, you're changing the macros, that's all you're doing. You went, right. I said, but I'm not going to frighten you with it. I said, I don't want you to eat 700 grams of carbs straight away. Let's start with three. And he was, he was still shocked at three. I said, no, I'll just do three for a week and see where you go. So he rang his back after a week. He went, I've lost two pound, but I feel better. I said, yeah, your metabolism's kicking in. I said, now raise it another hundred. So he did that for another week. And within 
um, say five or six weeks, he was up to the 700 grams of carbs because we just cut, oh. carried on increasing them and he was just getting sharper oh. and bigger. Why are people scared of carbs? Because of these crazy-ass uh, self yeah, yeah. coaches, you know what I mean, who've never done anything and they read something from a book and follow somebody else's logic and it's, it's just not logic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... For anybody that's maybe... It's thinks cutting their calves with no energy left and they think it's the way forward to lose weight. What advice would you give for them? <clears throat> right, the Atkins diet. People lose like eight to ten pound going on the Atkins diet within days and they think those oh I've lost eight to ten pounds within a couple of days. Simple case of water manipulation. Every molecule of glycogen in your system holds onto two molecules of water. So say your system is carrying a kilo of glycogen it's carrying another two kilo of water with that glycogen. If you go Atkins diet, you're going to burn all the glycogen off within 24 hours. So that water can't hold, that, there's nothing to hold the water. So the water goes with it. So within 24 hours, you can lose six pounds because the glycogen's gone, the water's got, the water's got to go over. It's six or seven pounds you can lose within 24 hours. Then you might create a bit of, um, uh, fat burning because your body's requiring the calories so it starts moving into burning the fat so that'll last for a few more days but then your body realizes there's nothing there so it slows up the metabolism slows back down so yeah you can lose eight ten pound in a week and feel great because you have psychologically but then your metabolism's slow and you can't really eat a lot you know what i mean mm. you, you're just you're eating protein and fats yeah. to keep yourself going mm. Our bodies are not made like that. They've never never been made like that. You need to keep a balanced diet. So when you won the Fifth Master Universe, how did your life change? Did it start to change? Did you start getting more recognition? More people want I wasn't, to work with you? I wasn't a um, like I kept myself to myself. It was a personal it was a personal thing I did. Why know? is that? Because it was I never chased any fame. I ch- I, this was just personal goals I was set myself to achieve. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't chasing sponsorships or fame or anything like that. I just, I basically went from there to the doors. You know what I mean? I started doing door security um, and I was getting recognition. So people was, and because I was handy as well, people would say, would you run me door for me? And I'd start taking more work on that side on the security. So, but nothing within the, actual sporting field no what kind of cycles were you doing were you what kind of like juice gear was it every uh, no I, I, like a lot of people would stay constantly on i can't believe how, how they can just ca- continuously do that i mean I, it's not about the gear the secret is the nutrition because you still kept your size you take anything now i i don't even train do you not no so but how i've did got you torn keep... muscles and stuff now so i don't train because so how do you I've keep your size because you see people maybe took gear 10 years ago and when they came off they just look fucking like I'm the, carrying a lot of fat now, say a lot of biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you so how do some people keep size and other people just it just goes? I think I think uh, synthetic size is built quite quickly with water retention mm-hmm. and they rely on drugs when they've built it that quickly, they rely on drugs to hold it there. Mine was done with many years of solid heavy training, and that's why um I was always a strong bodybuilder. And I always wanted to do strongman, but I didn't want to do it first. So that's that was me. I evolved from bodybuilder to strongman, not the other way around, because I did not want to compete strongman because of the risk of injury at strongman's 
quite heavy, I wouldn't be able to come back to the bodybuilding. But I could do it the other way. If I get injured at strongman, then I just retire yeah. at strongman. So what stuff would you take in a cycle? By a lot? You see the big, see the bigger men, would they be taking more gear or would just be training Some harder? Did. How does it work? Some did, but it's, that's not the magic formula. Like you say, the magic formula is the nutrition. It's how you eat, how your life is, um, how, how you're actually... Um, how you keep your pattern of your life together, like your, your rest, your sleep, your training, your nutrition, everything has to be in a, in a formula, you know, that's has, all has to go together, otherwise it just doesn't work. You can't have like a sleep pattern missing, you can't have like the nutrition missing. It's like putting a key in a lock, that lock will not turn if there's a tooth missing off the key, you know, and you've got to have everything in order and it's got to be that disciplined if, you, if you're lacking even, even a little bit of discipline, you're not going to make it. Was there a lot of jealousy towards you after running five? No. I think um, a lot of people realised the quality I was competing with and what I was doing to maintain it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would just do that one show every year. You know, I would just like think, after I'd won it the first time, I, I'd maybe do another show that might add a little bit of prize money, but there wasn't a lot of prize money there, so I used to just set me sides because I had a job I had the security business, which kept me going. So I trained like a professional, even though I was making professional money. Yeah, That's basically all I did. I lived to train. Why did you not go for the sixth? Because nobody had done five. The money wasn't there for six, and I still wanted to do strongman before I got too old. Mm-hmm. Why is so, that for muscle tears and all that shit? The strongman, I was strong as well. I, I was, mm-hmm. I mean, I was doing crazy weights in the gym, but I didn't realise the strongman... Because when I went to my first Britain's Strongest Man, I start, I, I did it without very little training. So I went from the October um, competing uh, to doing Strongman in the March. And I, I, my body wasn't really ready because I hadn't used much equipment. And you need to practice on the equipment, like lifting stones and stuff like that. Mm. It's not just gym training. You can be strong as a bull in the gym, but if you've never picked a stone up before, you're not just going to do it on the day. Um, so there is techniques and stuff you need to learn. Pulling a truck, you're not going to pull a truck on the day if you've never pulled one before. Mm-hmm. You need the right shoes. You know, you need to get low enough. There's a lot of technique behind the, a lot of it, so you need to get to somewhere where you can use that type of equipment. Yeah. And uh, although I had got somewhere to use the equipment, I hadn't practiced with everything, so I was I was raw, you know what I mean? I was going into it with just raw strength. So the first couple of events, I win outright, and like they're all raving, like thinking I'm going to win this competition, like no nobody's business. Me third event, I think I got fourth in. It was a shield carry, but it, it hurt me arms because mm-hmm. it was hard to get me because I was that deep with chest to get me arms right round. It was a steel Africa stone or wherever it was, and to get me arms right round it, it was digging in. To, it, was, it was that thick. You haven't a basic, if you can't get your fingers, you're holding like that, it's digging in there on the lower part, the biceps. So, you, and because there wasn't much fat on my arms, mm-hmm. it was it was like compressing a, a, um, a hose pipe, I suppose. It was flattening it. So, I can, I can just imagine like the pressure on my tendons. Now, looking back, is why my uh, arm tore on doing the stones on the next event mm-hmm. because there was still in like. A damaged yeah. position. You know? How hard is it to? What's the tra- what's the training like from being 
Bodybuilder to then go into strongman is it totally night for and me, day? For me, it is night and day. For me, it was easy to do strongman. Why is that? Because I could eat what I wanted. <laughs> I wasn't yeah. I was watching me food. Uh-huh. I could eat what I wanted and I still maintained decent shape. But um, to do the strongman, I was always used to training heavy anyway. It was And it was a, it was a new challenge because I was doing things differently. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a pleasure. Um, especially because I was I was quite good at most of it, you know. The strong so, man's massive now. So I'm good friends with the Stoltman brothers, yeah, yeah. Scott and Big absolutely, Tom, and yeah, yeah. his brother and his uh, just two great guys. And absolutely, twenty eight, twenty eight fucking stone. Over the move, them two. Twenty eight stone. Yeah, just two mm, good guys. Yeah. yeah, it's more endurance now. He says it's not just a case of no, picking no, up stones. So man, like, they've all got to train. They've all got to get athletically fit yeah. now. You know. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good crap. Mm-hmm. Well, we, there was a story where after I tore my bicep at Britain's Strongest Man, mm-hmm. this first year, um, I went to a place called, I was invited six weeks later, and that's how quickly I, I competed after the torn bicep. I went to Winnipeg in Canada, and I was thinking, oh, my arm's still a bit buggered, but I'll, you know, I'll go, I was part of a British team. There were six international teams there, so there six, 36 competitors. Um and all the guys who placed top six of Britain's strongest man. So I was like, you know, I wasn't the, the winner. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, there was me, Bill Pittick. Um, I forget who else was there. There was a few, a few top names there. But me and Bill Pittick, we, we, we treated quite um, relaxed. And it was in a nightclub, in this big nightclub in Winnipeg in Canada. And there was some good, there was Ukraine, Russian, uh, Czech teams, Dutch team, English team, USA, you know what I mean? And we thought like, oh, just relax, you know, we're just here for a good time. So anyway, me and Bill got drunk in the nightclub every night, stayed there at four o'clock, come out rolling. And that's not me, honestly, it's not me. I'm not a drinker, but we came out rolling every night to start competing at nine o'clock in the morning. Next day we saw Eds and we were winning everything. But I can only say it was down to being so relaxed, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, a lot of pressure gets put on you for those competitions. I suppose, yeah. yeah. Um, strongman's different than bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. You can get on stage and you just, you know, but strongman, you're competing against other men. Like, you yeah. know, it's mm-hmm. it's a race to who can do it first. Or... Yeah, your son's competing now, is that correct? Yeah, Ethan. How's How does he feel then? Is that a lot of pressure on him? Knowing who no, his old because boy he's, was? he's just too relaxed. But the first year he competed... He was only, I think he was only um, 19 himself and he came to me and he'd never competed before. He was just like, like, but I'd been trained as a boxer, you know, mm-hmm. so, but he'd never really done any training. He was, he'd done a bit of rugby at school and for the local rugby club, but he was very soft. You Did know? you ever try and push him into it at an early age? No, uh-huh. I've never pushed anybody to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's, it's up to them to make their own mind. But I, I, I don't uh, push them towards a few things. The mum took them to football, they played rugby, so they could make their own mind up. You know, but I didn't want to push them into something that was going to really um, contain them because mm-hmm. bodybuilding does contain you. Like it says, you just like it holds you down. If you if you get the bug, it'll hold you down. Um, so it was his choice. He came to see us after he'd been. Uh, he was sorry. He booked a holiday to go to Ibiza for September, and he said it was. Um, Will you write as a diet? I'll for, uh, try and get me abs through. And I'm looking at him thinking you're too soft. You'll not get abs <laughs> through. You'll not get abs through for September. You know mm-hmm. what I mean. But he stuck to his diet and he, you know, he did get some sort of shape and like leaned himself up. It wasn't like blocks of abs or anything, but he leaned himself up and he looked all right. Came back from Ibiza. And this is like, again, October time. Then the area uh, competitions in the May. He says to us, 
uh, do you think I could get ready for the junior North Britain? And I was like, how would you tell your son no? You know mm. what I mean? And I honestly didn't think he would do it, honestly. But I didn't I didn't tell him that. I just said to him, right, I'll tell you what we'll do with you. We'll give you a diet to stick to it at Christmas. If I see some improvement and I see some sacrifice, then we'll wait after Christmas, then we'll decide after Christmas. Give me his due. He put everything into it. Um, he got ready for the 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 area final. I'm going to show you some pictures actually. Yeah, when you sure, yeah, I'll show yeah. you some pictures you when we finish. You can put them up on the screen. And um, in it was ten months actually from him asking us to get on stage. You won't believe the change. Mm. I'll you can put them on the screen at the end. Yeah. Ten month transformation from a soft kid to a ripped athlete. You know what I mean? And he got second at the area competition. Mm. It was four weeks to the final after that. I put another ten pound on him for the final in in better condition, and he got second. At the, so he got second, second, or th- second or third at the final. Do you see a lot of yourself in your son? Um, that mentality, I can't no, do it. No, he's, he hasn't got the same mentality because he likes to party. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I just I wasn't that way inclined. Mm. You know, like when I was going out with my friends. Well, they weren't friends, they were colleagues. When I was getting ready for competitions and stuff, and they were all wanting to like, oh, we'll have a drink, we'll this, we'll that, you know, let's go and do this, let's go. I was like, no, it's time for me to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew I had trained in the morning, and that's where I was. Yeah. I just stuck with it, you know. When was the last time you competed, Eddie? Uh, Strongman was 2008. Was it? Um, which was a wild card, which I finished Strongman career in 2005, mm-hmm. actually, and did nothing for three years, but gym training. And I got invited to do Britain's Strongest Man in 2008 with a wild card. I'm not into wild cards. I like to earn my place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always used to argue about wild cards, you know. And anyway, I just, they were, they were short of competitors, Britain's Strongest Man. And just because I'd been a character in the past, they wouldn't give you a wild card. I said, I've only got three weeks to train. You know what I mean? So I'd said to them, do you mind giving us a couple of weeks to see if I can get me self-pulled around somewhere? Two weeks wasn't long enough. Mm-hmm. And they went, yeah, you know, I've caught the week. So I went down to Darren Sadler's yard. Darren now runs all the strong man. He looks after the the likes of the Sultans and everything. You know, it's mm. like um, he looks after the whole Giants Live mm. thing. He's it's it's his baby. Him and um, Colin, who uh, does all the commentating. So <clears throat> I went down to his yard and we did uh, we did some stones, some light stuff, and I, I pulled me lat doing the stones. I thought I'm going to leave that. I can't do it again. Otherwise, I'm going to tear myself to bits before the final. So I just re- I rely on my strength and remember what I did when I. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd done a lot of gym training for it, and I ended up uh, still getting into the final of Britain's Strongest Man and placing eighth, I think I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it thinking like, if I can just do something after three weeks training, and maybe next year I'll come back after a full year's yeah, training. Yeah. But I just. Uh, Has it become I, tiresome? It was tiresome. I just thought, you know, mm-hmm. so I'm not getting any younger, and these lads are all getting stronger. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like, I'm putting my body. It's not worth it. I'm not an egotistic mm-hmm. person. I don't do it for ego. How much sacrifice do you need to put in, Eddie, when you're doing competing for uh, Mr. Universe or Strongman? There's a lot of sacrifice. Both of them, there's a lot of sacrifice, yeah. And like, if you've got partners, they're going to suffer because you've got to be one trap minded. You can't, mm-hmm. you've got to, you, you times your own and nobody else's, and it does cause a lot of rifts. In, yeah. Um, what happened then once you stopped everything? Where did your life go then? I just started, tra- I, I stopped uh, Strongman and I just kept on with the gym and everything. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff that was in the papers there, you were fighting to keep your gym open through lockdown. So, what happened there was. 
Um, in the first lockdown, I lost mm -hmm. a member to suicide. Um, and another lad had got sectioned. And I knew nobody who'd suffered any sort of uh, fatality from COVID. And I'm not saying that COVID doesn't exist. What I'm saying about COVID, and even after, even now, I want to say what, it, what COVID's all about. The elderly, those who are weak with other conditions, they're the ones that's taken out. It's not taking out healthy people, you know? And that's the reality of it. But the young and those who've got work and everything else have all suffered for that. And they're the ones who are getting guilt-tripped into getting vaccinations to save the elderly, the elderly who are at the end of life. Um, and I just think, I think there's a, a narrative, there's a, an agenda behind it. And it's, as much as I'm going to sound like a conspiracy theorist, it's not conspiracy because I've researched the facts. There's, there's depopulation going on. And it's no, no different what the Nazis doing in the Second World War. They're, they're getting rid of the strain on society and the weak. You know, uh, basically the elderly that they've took out, which I believe they've taken them out really with with whatever it is, you know what I mean? They've gone early. I mean, still, the majority of people that have died of it are over 80. Um, when the, the, the end of life in the UK, like life expectancy in the UK, the average age is only 81.8. The average age of dying of COVID is 82.3. So hold on a minute, they've died over the average age. So there should be classes dying of old age. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The majority of people should be. Yeah. Because you've got to wear out sometime. If you die of cancer, heart failure, wherever, your body's at its end after end of life expectancy. Mm -hmm. And that's what I believe. And I, and I have, like you say, I have sympathy for all death. But what I found out in the, on, off the ON's own website, Office of National Statistics, is that those over 40, under 45, there was three times more suicides to COVID death in under 45 years of age. And the suicide death rate, because it would have already been suicides, it was up 50%. That's not proportional. And I think the, the whole thing's been handled wrong. Kids at the same time in the first wave, there was only four kids who died under 14. Yet we shoot all the schools, we shoot all the colleges, all the universities. There's only 10 under 20 total, and most of them have under, had underlying conditions. But we shoot all the colleges, all the universities. They're the ones that suffered. I had a nephew who was frightened to go out the house, a nine-year-old nephew, frightened to go out the house because he was th thought he'd die of COVID. There was no risk of him dying of COVID. He was a healthy kid. So at the end, at, towards the end of the first lockdown, I went and took him out for a day. And his mum says, I'm over the moon, you're taking him out. She says, um, he's never been out all, all through this COVID malarkey. She says, he's frightened to go out in case he catches COVID. So I took him out, but I'd seen he put so much weight on. He'd gone from a healthy, agile kid to this beefed up kid, you know, who'd just been sat in the house playing video games all summer. I took him out. He had a great day. I says, do you want to come out again tomorrow? And he was like, we were only at the beach. He said, oh yeah, I'll come out tomorrow. I said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go to Tweddle Farm tomorrow because the farm had just opened back up. It's like a petting farm. And his face changed. And I thought, what's the matter with him? Something out on him. What's, what's up? There's something bothering him. So I just left it to the end of the day. I said, are you still all right to go out tomorrow? He went, well, uh, maybe not. Um, I don't really want to go out to Tweddle because uh, there's pigs there and I might get the, the swine flu, isn't there? And I was like, what's this doing to our children? You know what I mean? And we're going to suffer these effects for many years to come. 
When did you start looking into it then fully, like statistics and? After we lost that guy to suicide, mm-hmm. I started researching it last August. I formed a group called MAD, which is Make a Difference. And it wasn't so I could uh, open all businesses. It was more so to help those with mental, mental health problems. Forming a group like that brought a lot of people together who do have mental health problems. And even just meeting once a week, it was alleviating a lot of problems that they had because they could talk to somebody with similar problems and we discussed them with each group. And we, we hugged, we, you know, we shook hands, we went on walks together. Big, the group grew and grew and grew. And then the police came and infiltrated when, when they dropped the no more than two together. You know, you, you can't get, no, so it was groups of six. But I was, I was informing the council and I was informing the police what I was doing. I was saying, I have the right to assemble. Under the United Nations laws, everybody has the right to protest or assemble. I said, and you can't discriminate against it. I said, and Cliff, Christoph Heinz from the United Nations, uh, is the United Nations expert on, uh, on um, human rights, had said that COVID-19 can't be used as an excuse to calm down on your fun- fundamental rights. I said, so this is what we're doing. And they didn't like it, but they still tried to push the English legislation. So I was, I was calling the police ignorant for doing it. I says, I'll challenge it in court. You remain. So <clears throat> after I started doing that, and the police tried to infiltrate. I thought, no, nah, I can do this. So when I found all that information, I started digging deeper for more information. I got the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. There's 30 rights, 30 articles in the rights, the right to travel the right of uh, assembly, the right of free speech, all the rights that would support a peaceful, a right to protest, peaceful protest. So I thought, no. And and also the United Nations said in the article that uh, you could, protesters, and it was it was during the time of uh, racial discrimination for BLM to hit the streets, protesters could wear masks or hoods and governments and police couldn't collect personal data from them. I thought, well, that's another one for us. We can use that. Um, everybody has the right to protest indoors, outdoors or online. I said, right now, I'm, if there's another lockdown come, which I think there is, I'm opening my gym to protest indoors. So lockdown two came, I put a rope across the ramp to me business. The rope read, um, peaceful protest ongoing, um, no trespass, any other business telephone number. So they couldn't come across that rope and they still coming to protest. In me windows, all the paraphernalia, no more suicides, articles and rights and everything were all paraphernalia in me window. I also had a big notice to read on the window, which was an A3. And it basically started to say, this business is not open for regular, this, this premise is not open for regular business. We are only open to peaceful protest. And I listed all the articles to how to peacefully protest and how we could do it and how it was, you know, so they had to read that on coming in. Once people came in, they were all strangers. The majority of them were all strangers. They'd come in, they'd say, um, uh, I'd say, what, what are you here for? And they'd say, if they said they were here to train, I'd say, you better get your ass back outside and read that poster again. And some some of them, not too bright, took three <laughs> times. <laughs> so they'd come in and they'd eventually say, I'm here to use my fundamental right to protest. I said, right, okay, there's a slip. Print your name there. You're here to fundamental, use, use your fundamental rights to peacefully protest, sign. So I had everybody slip a paper to say they'd come to, sign, to peacefully protest. 
they'd ask if they could pay. I said, I can't take a payment because my business isn't open, but you're free to make a donation if you wish. So they made donations. Um, and then people said, well, can we train? I said, that's entirely up to you. How you want to protest is entirely up to you. So when the police came, eventually the police did come, uh, but I'd warned the police what I was doing and I told the council what I was doing. And because I wasn't open for regular business, I wasn't open all day long to me business hours. I was only open select hours. Mm -hmm. So I would open three hours in the morning, three hours on the night. So I wasn't open for regular business. I was only open to protest. So this is once the police came in and I saw them. I wasn't watching all the time. I was stood behind reception. And anyway, the police came in this day and I, I shout, I said, excuse me, what are you doing? And they went, yeah, breaking COVID rules. I said, out. And the men walked back out the door because we're on private property. Mm -hmm. I own the whole building. And I go outside and say, well, you know, are you breaking COVID rules? I said, no, I'm not peacefully protesting. I said, under United Nations laws, I have the right to protest. And you can't do nothing about it. No, well, not under the English legislation. I says, okay, then I'm going to use an analogy here. English, England's strongest man, world's strongest man, which is more superior. You know what I mean? So you've got English legislation, now you've got United Nations legislation. I says, the UK is a member of the United Nations. 173 countries ratified the United Nations Covenant. I says, in the United Nations, England, UK are one of the biggest funders. I says, they've got to abide by United Nations laws. I said, so I'll take my chance in court with United, United Nations laws. And they're like, well, that's not right. There's people training. I said, define protest. Uh, and those stumped, well, I says, in the dictionary, protest says an action or statement in objection of. The action or statement's training, and we're objecting about gyms being closed. Peaceful, there was no aggro. It's a peaceful protest. And there was stumped, you know. One copper, one copper said it was, well, that's not right. Just because I've got a car doesn't mean I can drive it at 80 mile an hour. I went, nah. I says, that's breaking the law. Mm -hmm. Training isn't. And I walked back inside and left him scratching his head, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then another day they came and they were, they were trying to take pictures on the outside of me ramp, but they were still on my land. So I went outside and I'd seen these two before. And I says, can I ask you what we're doing? Yeah, we police. I says, I know you police. I says, see that bungalow over there? He says, yeah. I says, see that bungalow over there? He says, yeah. I says, draw an imaginary line across there. He says, yeah. I says, get back the other side of it. I says, this is my property, you trespassing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what did they do? They did. <clears throat> when did they, did they ever, when did they shut you down though and how so so I'd boxed this off for weeks mm -hmm. and even to the point where the infiltrator tried to stop people tried to find people coming out the building and I stood me ground with them me on my own nobody else mm -hmm. people panicked in the gym they'd come from all over and they were like oh, Eddie the police are there don't worry about us I'll go out in the front and I said you're not at liberty to collect any details so off do one no, no, Mr. Elwood, you, you, you don't know what you're doing. I says, I don't know what I'm doing. I says, and you're not at liberty to collect any details of anybody leaving a peaceful protest, and I'll do one. You know what I mean? So I was saying to people inside, leave, get in your vehicles, don't take any notice of the police. You don't have to give the police any details. You give them your details, they're going to give you a fine. But if you don't give them your details, you'll be on your way. I said, if they've got anything on you, they would arrest you. And I'm telling you, you'll not get arrested, arrested, but they will find you if you give them details. So they'll go out. So some of the lads were like, okay. So I'd go out and stand on the ramp. And I'd say, right, just get in your car, carry on driving, keep carrying on driving out the gate and away home. And I would stand there shouting them as the police were knocking on the windows, telling them to stop. You know what I mean? Mm. But they never <clears> got arrested. Anyway, I'd gone inside and some of the women were a bit anxious. So I'd say to the women, 
right, I know you're a bit anxious and I'm not expecting you to front the police because there was, there was four coppers outside my gates and there was two, there was a chief uh, and uh, a female officer inside trying to collect information on them. So anyway, um, <clears throat> the women, I said to them, look, I'm not expecting you to leave by the front door. I don't expect you to front it. So if you want, you can leave by the fire exit. I'll shut the, shut the doors. I'll leave. You can leave by the fire exit when I've gone. Just shut the fire exit behind you. Right, do you not mind? I said, no, no, I don't mind. So anyway, a few more lads are leaving. In the meantime, they've gone. One lad told us the next day, he'd, he says to us, do you mind if I leave my van? He says, not in Sherwood. <laughs> I says, no. So he left his van in the car park and walked. So I'm shouting at him, do not give them. So there's two coppers on his tail following him. But didn't, I said, just don't say anything to them. Just carry on walking. Don't even, don't even have to talk to them. Mm. I said, if they go out on you, they'll arrest you there. And then just carry on walking. He got right. He got about thousand yards all the way around to a road junction across the road and the police were hammering like aggravating them all the way around saying we're going to arrest you if you don't stop he, he said i got the junction i was thinking like shall i take a step across the road he says and i start walking across the road and they'll just shout if you come back we'll arrest you is that <laughs> so not harassment though it's harassment so i was telling them that that they were harassing people so as i came as he told me that the next day i said well that shows you that nothing on you because they couldn't arrest you mm -hmm. i said um so as he'd gone, so then there was other lads left, and then the, the women went, buff, buff the chest. No, Eddie, we're going by the front too. I thought, good on you, you know what I mean? So one of the women went out, her car was quite close. I said, just get in your car and just drive out the gates. Do not take any notice of them officers. Mr. Elwood, you're interfering with police business. I said, you've gotten out and you can't do it. I said, just get in your car, keep on driving. And she's driving out, out the gates, which is about, probably 50 metres away from my main door, the gates. And she gets down to the gate, and she's half out the gate, half on the road, and a copper jumped in the road and went, stop! And I thought, oh. so I took off down the road. I got to the bottom of the road. By the time I'd get in there, she, our window was down, and he had her crying. So I jumps in the road. I went, right. I says, go on, get on your way, Flower. Get on your way. And he was saying, Mr. Elwood, under the road traffic act. I says, what? road traffic act I said she's not doing no she hasn't broke any laws she's driving a car on a main road I said go on get on your way she's got so she's up, halfway up the road he shouts I've got your number <laughs> and I turned to the four of them that were there and I said is this what our police have turned into mm -hmm. you know what I mean a pack of fannies mm -hmm. no need to swear myself but I says fannies not swearing and I walked back in so anyway um she didn't get fined. They still not had any fines off, the, off that day. And they were harassing the life out of people in my car park that day. It eventually came to a, a culmination. I'd had police coming in. I bought myself a body cam to, to, to record everything. Sorry. I, I bought myself a body cam to record everything. And it was a proper police like type quality, you know, so it had a big red laser on. So on the night time through the, through the winter, I was going outside and I was, if there was a cop, the, one day my son was in train, which he was allowed to, because he was an elite athlete. He could train with his girlfriend, him and his girlfriend in the private gym, wasn't breaking any rules. So he's, he was in, he says, dad, he says, there's a police van parked right outside the gate. So if you manage, imagine my gates are there, the ro double roads run down here. The police van was there. That was my gates. Mm -hmm. So he was there to intimidate people driving in. You know, you could see what he was there yeah. for. I says, "All right, son." I says, "You just lock up." I says, uh, "Come home." I says, I'm, "I'm on my way down." This was middle of lockdown three, so I'd get through all lockdown two. No fines yet. No fines. 
uh, and getting through all lockdown two, uh, into lockdown, halfway into lockdown three. So I said, all right, I'm coming down. And I'm confident now because I've done it that many days now, you know. So I drives down through the street. He's still there. I drives in there, up to the gym, up the ramp, opens the door, lights on, music blasting. I went and put my body cam on and I pointed the red laser through his window. And it was refracting like a little red glittering disco ball in his cab. And he must have thought, oh, God. Anyway, he lasted about 10 minutes, put his lights on and he went. You know, it's as if he was being called to somewhere. And then a couple of days later, I had another cop car come in and they just sat in a parking bay. So I put me, me laser on again, went outside and it blasted through his window. And, he got, and you could see he was sick. And he got out of his car and he come wandering over. He went, Eddie, man. He says, we get it. He says, we get it. I says, I know what you're taking orders that you don't really believe in, just like the Nazis did in the Second World War. You know, you can't have an excuse to obey orders that are not really right. You know what I mean? Morally right. You know, they're wrong. So anyway, he says, we get it. So anyway, they went. And then a week before I was done, and there's no way that my gym wasn't centre of attention or centre board in the police station at the start of every shift. You know what I mean? There would have been like, we've still got this ongoing. Who's going tonight? You know what I mean? It's got to have been. There's no way that wasn't like, oh, oh, we've still got Elwood's gym, you know, extreme fitness. There's no way it would have been just discussed and every cop must have known about it because how I had that much interaction with it. So this night, I'm, I'm um, in the gym and one of the lads on the calf machines looking out the doors. He said, he's a police woman just pulled up in a car there. And I was like, yeah. So I thought, well, everybody knows what's going on here. Mm. You know what I mean? I even had, I was on a main dual carriageway on the way to town, all the lights upstairs blazing like Blackpool. So I wasn't hiding anything. The council and the police knew exactly. I'd emailed them all. So I was thinking, what's she doing here? You know what I mean? So I went outside and she was, as I was getting close to her, I thought I'm not even going to let her get to the ramp where the rope is. I got under the ramp, start walking towards her. So as I'm getting towards her, she's just putting a mask on. She went, get back. I says, get back. I says, you get back, you're in my yard. Anyway, she looked at his attitude. And all I can think of is, she's probably thought, I'll show you, lads. She's been, like, she's took it on as a challenge because she'd come by herself. And what makes it more uh, realistic that way would be, she'd come by herself, she had attitude straight away. I think she was trying to work us to get get me to rise. So then it would become a non-peaceful protest. And then they'd have room to be able to arrest us. So I, 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 I was too long in the tooth for that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, so I went to see her and I'd said like, says, I says, listen, I'm abiding by United Nations laws. I'm this and that, you know, I try to explain it all again. I said, I've even got the laws inside. If you want us to show you, I don't need to see the laws. I know my laws. I said, I'll go and get them for you. Just, just so she was aware that I knew what I was doing and that she should be mm-hmm. really working for me under, under oath. I had studied all the police oaths and everything, what they should be stand for. They should be apolitical, shouldn't be working for the government, should be working for the public. They should be um, protecting our fundamental rights, you know, as civilians. They work for us as civilians. So I went in, got the laws, brought them out, went, here, I've got them laws. She went, I don't need to see them. I says, that's ignorance. That. She went, I'm ignorant. I says, yeah, you're ignorant. You know, she wouldn't read them. So then... Um, I went back outside to try and talk to her. She gave us a bit of, she went, come here, I'm going to find you. I says, you ain't like. And she went, aren't I? I says, no, you're not. And then I got under me rope and I says, and you cross that and I'm going to find you. And she went, oh. 
I says, I mean, you go across. I had fine books even wrote up, right? There was no way they could stand anywhere. It was just to give them a bit of harassment back. So if they were going across my barrier, you're going to get a fine back. Um, so then she got on a, a radio. I, got, I went inside and I just stood inside and she was on a radio. And within five minutes of her speaking on it, because I went inside thinking, no, she's got, she can't do now. She's not going to do now. Within five minutes, three vans came flying at the car park four police cars outside the gate. And I was like, oh, wow. I sat down myself straight away. I thought, they must have someone on us. What have they got on us? What have I missed? You know what I mean? What have I missed? Anyway, um, so, so I went outside again and I'm, look, I'm looking and one of the coppers is getting out of the vans and she's convening in the centre of the car park with all of them. One of the coppers says, can I have a word, please? So he came walking over. I says, uh, I says, what's the problem with your officer? I says, there's no aggro here. He says, I know, and we're not allowed, we, we can't cross your barrier either. And I was thinking, right, that's something. What, what have they come flying in for? And within five minutes, I've worked the clubs in the town for many years. When the tub, club, the town was at its busiest, I had the majority of the main clubs in the town. I was 80 yards from a police station. If I ever wanted assistance, it used to take them 40 minutes to get there. You know what I mean? Yeah. For, for the clubs. They were there within five minutes to tack on me with that much force. You know what I mean? It was planned. They were waiting at the end of the street. And I think she'd been sent mm -hmm. to get me to rise and then they would come in. Uh, and as this couple of I'd talked to was walking down to see what they were talking about in the group, she'd already left the group and was walking back. And she was pa as she was passing, I heard her say, apparently it's been dealt with. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And they all had to go. The Within two days... My son was in the premise. Again, they came when I wasn't there because I would front everything. They came when my son was in and served him with the prohibition, prohibition, not prohibition, a closure notice under an antisocial behaviour order. So I got that on three o'clock in an afternoon. So he brought it home and gives it at five o'clock. I still went down that night, but I had to close because the coppers turned up. The coppers can come in on a closure notice because they've already mm -hmm. been given the authority off the courts. And I didn't know anything about it, so, but you've got 48 hours. It's an emergency notice. I asked to go to court within 48 hours to shoot somewhere. And I'm thinking, like, what's the crack? Hey, like, obviously, I can't get a solicitor that day. I can get a solicitor the following day. So I got a solicitor the following. I, I rang a solicitor the following day, but I'm a court at 10 o'clock the day after in the morning. So he says to us, oh, he says, uh, I'm a court all day. I'll give you a ring back tonight. And I'm thinking, well, that's a bit late. You don't even know where I'm being. You know what I mean? So anyway, he rings us back at nine o'clock that night. All right, Eddie, I'll uh, see you at 10 a.m. in the morning. I'm thinking, well, you don't know anything. I'm not going to fight this. So I went to court the next day and he says, um, right, what have you got? And I showed him. I says, uh, I says, and I've been peacefully protesting. This is how I've been doing it. And this, I'd, all, I'd spent all night putting it all in order. All the emails I'd sent the council, and I'd sent them lengthy emails, like they were like five mm. pages long. Um, police, they'd all had emails of us. He said, "I'll just go and see what they're what they're actually pushing for." He says, "Because I can't st I can't understand this, the ASBO why they're pu pushing on an ASBO." So he came back. He says, "You get the ASBO, whatever." He says, "That's what's been decided." But he says, "I can't understand why they're pushing." But he says, "You fucked anyway." He says, I says, "How was that like?" He says, "Well, because I've got people training in your gym on camera." I said, "But I was." How's that? I says, I've never denied that. I says, not once have I denied that. I says, you know, it's it's uh, that's a protest still. Well, how you you can't train on it. I says, I says a protest is an action in objection of and and peaceful. I explained it to him. Oh, I can't say that. 
then he says, bro, I'll, I'll, um, if you want us to object, I'll object for you. I'm thinking, well, you're not confident. You know what I mean? So immediately I knew I was, he says, but if, if you want to push it, it's English law, not, go, not get discussed. In English. United Nations laws won't be discussed in English law courts. It'll get pushed to, United, to Crown Court. And Crown Court's also an English court. He says, and that won't get discussed there, so it'll get pushed to a Supreme Court, international mm-hmm. European court. He says, you're going to spend under grand. So he put us down, he frightened the life out of us. I wish I'd known more what I know now. I'd have challenged it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we decided to accept the closure notice with respect that if gyms opened before my closure notice did, that they would allow that closure notice to lift because otherwise they'd lose a lot of business. Because the closure notice was to middle May and lockdown lifted on 12th of April for gyms. So they, they said yes to that. So I said, well, I'll work under the radar, you know, and find out what I can do. So at the minute, I've got some interest with working for them, with the lawyers from Liberty, which are all on the same page as us at the moment. Yeah. These are independent lawyers that don't believe in what's going on and want to fight what's going on. And I'd done a lot of studying on the ASBO. I read right through the ASBO and the very last article or sentence in an ASBO, because ASBO can be used for crack houses, mm-hmm. drunken disorderly, play music too loud, ride motorbikes up and down the street. They're all reasons for, for an ASBO. But at the end of the ASBO description, it says an ASBO can't be used in conjunction with human rights. So I was protesting, which is a human right. So I can't say all that closes. Have you ever been fined yet? No. 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 Is that everything dealt with now? It's dealt with, but I want to push mm. it further. What do you think with the rise in between COVID te- deaths and suicide deaths? <clears throat> well, that was the thing. Another thing, like I said, there was it, it, from the COVID deaths under forty-five. Um, there was only five hundred and forty-five cases in the first lockdown. Which again, like I said, with us losing a friend to suicide, I studied all this and then to find out there was three times more suicides than COVID deaths in those under 45 in the first lockdown. That's what I just started doing this for. I was thinking, this is, dispro- this is not proportional. Mm-hmm. It's not right. It's not what, you know, the, the really, there's a lot more people dying because they can't manage the mental health. Why was there some gyms getting fined 10, <clears throat> 20, 30 grand? Because they, did, they were using um, Article 61, which is common law, which can, which can stand... If What's you know Article what, 61? It's a right to rebellion. Um, and gym owners, we're using that and we're told what to say. But if you haven't got it up here, you're going to get fined. Because the audition finds out like they were, yeah. you know. Seeing some nothing. kids in Liverpool, Manchester, yeah. they were like padlocks on their door, yeah. the coppers were just coming <laughs> right through and jailing them. So I knew I had something. Because that day I told you about them being in my car park and me getting people out and I had to rush down to, and I was on the main road. Mm-hmm. Why didn't the rest of me is the gym owner? Why was everybody not jumping on that then? You know what I mean? People not messaging I had, you. I had people messages and I tried to guide them through it. I told them they had to come and see what I was doing to actually walk through it, mm-hmm. to get confidence in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And if they all stood on and done what I'd done, we'd, they'd still probably end up with the, the closure notices at the end of it, but they'd be getting all that time without mm-hmm. hassle if they'd have stood on and researched yeah. it. The only thing is, you did need to research it. You can't just have, it's just like the Article 6.1. If you don't know what you're talking about, they're going to tie you in knots. Like police came to my mum's gym and I only had to turn up, happened to turn up one day and I boxed it off because I knew everything. 
my parents were doing everything. They were mirroring everything I was doing. It wasn't it was my parents, Jim, but it was my brother that was doing it. I gave him the notices for the window. I made sure that they, he said what they had to say, but they were a different council to me. Durham Council, mm. Hartlepool Council, different council. So their environmental health officer was a bastard. Yeah. Um, he was a proper jobsworth. Mm. Where do you go now with it, Eddie? So now I want to work with the Lois for Liberty and I want to create a... Um, independent gym alliance and at the protests at the weekend just gone in london um i met up with dorian yates um dorian's well awake and i'm hoping that he's going to put his name behind the independent gym alliance to try and get gyms open if there's any more lockdowns and the idea is um nathan dasher who who was also um pushed heavily through the lockdowns for keeping his gym open and a lad called Damien from Rip Gym, who's from Liverpool also, they were all going to pull together and try, we want a, like a, a crowd justice um, page where we can raise funds for lawyers and legals to get it up and running and get a plan, to get some, um, like a plan for gyms to open legally. And then we want to try and raise like a, the independent gym alliance, we want to do it with a, a membership fee so gyms can maybe pay 50 quid, members of gyms can maybe pay 10 pounds. So if there's any more future lockdowns, they can attend them quite freely and feel comfortable mm-hmm. of not being fined. And if they do get fines, our legal team will take it all under one umbrella. Yeah. For anybody watching, Eddie, that's maybe battling with mental health, how important is exercise key for them? I don't think I don't think people realise how, how there's only those who don't train think it's a load of cods wallop. If they don't train, they just watch BBC TV all the time, then they're in one frame of mind. They don't understand how beneficial uh, training or exercise or anything, be it a member of any club, they're a member of a club for a reason because they like to socialise with people. And just cutting that one aspect out of their lives causes big mental health strain. And I would said in gyms, 90% of people that attend gyms attend for the mental health, to have some sort of structure in their life, to meet up with people, have a bit of banter, have a, mm-hmm. they don't necessarily just go to train. The ones, and I, I'll say this, even myself, we've all suffered some sort of mental health in our, in our lifetime, you know what I mean? Um, and I'll say that uh, 90%, like I said, only 10% go to get a physique, to compete, to be that person who wants to, to you know what I mean, mm. to, to be that structure of a man or structure of a woman, have that perfect physique. But even them, they wear that physique as a shield, protect what's happening inside. Yeah. Just before we finish up, Eddie, do you think there'll be another lockdown? Yes. Even though with the vaccines and all that put in place? Yes. Yeah? And the reason I do is because the vaccines, uh, we, we got through the first wave without vaccines. Uh, we, know we didn't have to wear masks. BLM hit the streets in the hundreds of thousands. We had um, VA Day and everybody, and, and we flattened the curve the actual rise in infection rates started when they introduced the man- mandatory mask wearing and introduced vaccines, vaccine trials. All of a sudden, the infection rates started rising again. And yeah, it might sound a bit uh, conspiracy theorist type thinking, but it's more suspicious. I'm just suspicious of what's going on. 
Um, and the more they've done the vaccines, the more deaths seem to appear. So if all the elderly and all those who are at risk are vaccinated by now, why are we still worrying, worrying about other strains? The young, the healthy, those, you know, they should be allowed to live their lives normally. The vulnerable, the, the, the aged who are at risk, segregate themselves, let the rest of the country live, yeah. keep the workforce going. Eddie, for coming on today and telling your story, brother, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you. And I uh, look forward to what you see for the rest of the future, brother. Right, you are. Take Thank care. You. you can also watch my podcast on my YouTube channel. The link is in the bio if you'd like to subscribe. You can follow me on my social media platforms to see who my next guest is. Follow me on Facebook at James English 11, Twitter, James English 0, Instagram, James English 2. You can also download these podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Sports Social Podcast Network.